This is Dave Moss of the Unfunded List, and I'm pleased to bring you the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. The skills and determination required to become an expert in something, whether that's science or art or history or whatever discipline, have very little overlap with the skills and access required to be a good fundraiser or philanthropist. There are many talented experts out there with great ideas who find those ideas unfunded, while lesser ideas, with shakier evidence behind them, find funding due to their superior branding and fundraising abilities. So what is the role of experts when it comes to philanthropy? Many experts became experts because of intense passion for the field they study. Dr. Greg Stone, PhD, is certainly one of these. With a lifelong passion for the ocean and the creatures who live in it, Dr. Stone has taken a path to becoming one of the world's leading experts on the sea. He also has experience working in some of the most elite philanthropy circles, including Pew Charitable Trusts, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He currently serves as Executive Vice President for Conservation International and is the author of Soul of the Sea in the Age of the Algorithm, now available on Amazon. Dr. Stone was kind enough to invite me over to his apartment in Malibu, where, sitting next to his signed poster from the movie Jaws, as the Pacific Ocean's waves could be heard in the distance, we sat and chatted the connection between philanthropy, expertise, and the future of the planet. Enjoy. I uh, was born in Boston. Okay. In Mass- Boston proper? Or? Uh, Boston proper. I was born there. <laughs> now I'm here. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, my, uh, my mother's from Newton. Oh, okay. So I know lots of times when people say Boston, they mean yeah. something near Boston. Yeah, well, I was technically born in downtown Boston, but lived in Newton, lived in Concord, oh, lived really? in Walpole, lived in Framingham. We moved around a bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've lived all over the world since then. So. And you left Boston for Los Angeles at some point? Uh, no, I left Boston for Maine, oh. and then I left Maine for Washington, D.C., and then I left Washington, D.C. for Japan. I left Japan for New Zealand, and on and on and on it goes. And most recently, Hawaii, and then L.A. Uh, so from Boston, you went to, uh, I think I remember you telling me you went to uh, College of the Atlantic? I did, right? yeah. What was that like? Uh, it was tr- transformative for me because I had I'd never really been anywhere, <laughs> even outside of Boston. So going to Maine was like a big. Ad- this is in Bar Harbor, right? Yeah, yeah, and it was it was the kind of place where uh, it, I really addressed what I needed, which was to be uh, outside with my hands in a tide pool, diving underwater. I mean, I wasn't a very good high school student, um, but once I once I began to have, you know, firsthand experiences and, and to combine, it's really like Joseph Campbell, I don't know if you've read his stuff at all, but he, he's a, a kind of a philosopher writer and he talks about 
the combination of the physicality with the intellect. And when you combine those two things, you have a, a much deeper like experience in, in life. And that was really the case for me. Once I was able to like combine my, my body with my, my work, everything changed. I turned into a straight A student. <laughs> it sounds like Thoreau. He's a little Thoreau-esque, yeah, yeah. Uh, although the, it, a little bit more modern, uh, Spielberg used a lot of the Thoreau. Campbell talks about the hero, <clears throat> the, the archetypical hero, in in uh, in human culture, and uh, and then he talks about this idea of learning. And uh, he used Spielberg used a lot of the Joseph Campbell uh, principles when he developed the Star Wars trilogy. That, that, that was not just like a random storytelling. He actually used what he believed were some underlying well, human ar archetypes. Is he the one that wrote The, the Hero with 10,000 Faces? Yes. Oh, I did read that in college. Yes, that's Joseph Campbell. That's an excellent book. Yeah. Uh, that was like, really kind of my note. I was like, oh, well, every story is different and unique. <laughs> and I found out. They're all the same. Uh, no, actually, no. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Greeks basically figured out the story, the arch archetypical storyline, and it's just been told over and over again. Uh, yes, and... Uh, Yeah. Um, we, can, we can still keep it interesting. The, um, uh, so uh, uh, to go back to Boston, uh, how do you develop uh, an interest in the oceans? And you must have had an interest in the oceans if you went to college at Atlantic uh, from Boston. Did you well, go to the beach a lot? No, we didn't, actually. Uh, for me, it was uh, TV. Uh, it was, uh, uh, I started watching this show with this guy that had a French accent. And it was an old TV with the clicky channel changer, mm -hmm. and I did have one. Every, oh, oh, you I did. I, I know I looked and, down. And every uh, <laughs> every eight weeks or so, there was this show called The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, yeah. and I would uh, sit there on the living room floor with my mask and flippers on and uh, count the days in between these programs. And I I was just totally taken in by it, like I guess a lot of the country was. And then there was another TV show called uh, Sea Hunt, with mm -hmm. uh, Lloyd Bridges, and it was a black and white program. Uh, by, uh, and this guy was like a detective guy, but every episode, he was a diver, and every episode had him underwater doing something. Anyway, those two shows really, really captivated me. And I knew, <clears throat> I knew from that point on that I wanted to do something with the ocean. There was no question about that. And then it was, uh, when I was about eight years old, I finally got to the ocean. Um, and visited my cousin, who lived south of Boston, uh, in Hingham. And um, sure. he had, uh, we had, I remember we had two flippers and two masks. So we each got a flipper and one mask. And he took me out into this tide pool. And uh, to this day, I remember what it was like. You know, again, it was the cold. It was something about the water was cool and refreshing. I looked underwater and there was all these colors, you know, the starfish and the waving kelp. And, and uh, my life changed actually from that moment forward. Uh, I knew it was the ocean. I didn't know exactly what it would be within the ocean space. Like for a long time, I wanted to be a commercial diver until I figured out that it was essentially underwater construction work. And then I, uh, then I had a high school science teacher who um, taught me about marine biology and, and especially marine invertebrate biology, which is still my first love. And uh, science, I realized, was something I could do, so I did that. Um, terrific. Yeah, so, but, uh, so you used to, while you were Things you said in that story. While you were watching the Sea Hunt program with the conceivable Lloyd Bridges, yeah, um, which I've, I've heard of that show, but I don't think I ever got to see it. 
you would wear your mask and slippers while you watched the show? Yeah, I'd have them with me, yeah. <laughs> did you have them with you, or were they, did you I, get in the I, 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 <laughs> I, I would put the mask on, yeah. yeah. What, did your, what did your folks think of that? Uh, I, I thought it was kind of strange or cute, I guess. I don't know, I never really asked them. But it, was, it became such a such a common thing for me to do. And I'd also swim around the bathtub. You know, I'd, I'd bring them into the bathtub with me because we didn't, we didn't live near the ocean. We didn't have a swimming pool, so that was the closest I could get. Uh, what did your parents do? Uh, my father was an accountant. My mother was a nurse. Mm -hmm. um, how did they, uh, were they from Boston? Or? My father was from Boston. My mother was from Kansas. Hmm. And my, yeah, I, my, both of my family trees are uh, back in the U.S. from the 1600s. Hmm. Uh, my mother's side went west, and they were uh, settlers out in Kansas. And, Civil War vets. Uh, my great great grandfather was a sheriff, a root and tootin' sheriff, friend of Wyatt Earps, hmm. and uh, my father's side was pretty much uh, New Englanders. It was an undertaker, a doctor, a candlestick maker. You know, just normal kind of stuff. <laughs> but uh, as you were uh, growing up, did you have um, uh, any sort of encouragement to give back, engage in service, uh, do volunteering, anything of that sort? Um. <clears throat> Well, I volunteered at the New England Aquarium when I was in high school, uh, but I wouldn't call it giving back. I think it was a very selfish endeavor mm -hmm. in that I wanted that experience. So I think that, that where you're going with that line of questioning, um, I would say no. I, there wasn't a, uh, I, I was raised in a Unitarian church. Most of the lectures or sermons that I heard were about the Vietnam War. Um, you know the old joke about Unitarians is that when they die and go to heaven, there's a there's two doors. There's one door to heaven and one door to a discussion room to talk about it. And all the Unitarians go into the discussion room. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of, um, of the, this denomination, like three people this denomination die, and it, it, those always tend to be funny. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the French thing. Uh, so uh, you are, you're right to bring up the religion. Lots of, when, I, when I ask this question, lots of folks tell me that um, they got this from religion. Uh, and one of the reasons why, why I ask is I want to get to the, the, the heart of what um, what causes people to um, have a career like yours, right? I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of people out there, and this is confusing to me, uh, go out there and they have the reason they have a career is because they want to make money. That is the, the 100 percent the only reason they have, they have a career. Now I understand some people have, you know, they, 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 they need money, they really need money, and they have to be working to have it. But uh, people who make decisions like to go to Wall Street or something. Came from an affluent background. You were raised with every opportunity, and then you took a job on Wall Street at Bain Capital, making you know, even more money. <laughs> I find that so confusing. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, it's something I, I, I literally don't figure out. And I try. To, what is it that we? How can we train folks to be good people? I think that so far the best we've done as, huma as humans is is organized religion. I, uh, for all its faults and everything, uh, they get folks young. Uh, they do tend to uh, instill some sort of sense of charity and giving back. Uh, and not for nothing, your, um, the, the Vietnam War was uh, problematic, and um, you know, you've learned, hopefully, learned something from it, about that. Uh, did you enjoy? Are you still? Are you still a Unitarian? Are you still? No, no. I, uh, I, if, if I'm anything, I'm probably a Buddhist. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I have a very broad view of uh, spirituality and. And uh, feel like everybody, you know, 
kind of has the probably has to find their own path. I don't feel like one's better than another. I just think it's like the reason I like Buddhism is that it's pretty accepting of just about everything. Mm. Um, but to your question though about, I, I think I can uh, comment on it a little bit in that uh, my interest in the ocean was 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 passion. It was it was excitement. It was uh, the idea of you know diving on shipwrecks. It was the idea of diving with dolphins and whales and all that kind of stuff. So I got into marine uh, science in a very, uh, uh, you could almost say selfish way or, or a career excitement way was what I wanted to do. But what happened then is uh, I, you know, I, I went into pretty classical research in oceanography. I was you know, going down in the ocean in deep sea submersibles and living underwater and writing science papers and whatnot. And then I I had, a, I had a transformational dive in the early 90s. I was uh, in a submarine off the coast of Japan, and I was down to about 18,000 feet, and we were looking at a submarine uh, uh, earthquake epicenter that had uh, erupted some uh, 10 years before. And when we got down there, and, and by the way, the deep sea at that level is uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very muddy, flat environment. It's these salacious muds. It's basically... Uh, many hundreds of millions of years of, of silica drifting down from phytoplankton, and it forms this very fine mud. And uh, as we got to the seafloor, we could still see the cracks in the mud from the earthquake that had happened 10 years before. It's a very slow-moving environment, too. Things don't happen very quickly. And I remember seeing the um, outlines of the fish that had been killed 10 years before was still there. So it's like time goes slowly down there. Everything goes slowly. But the thing that struck me was all the plastic and garbage that I saw mm. on the seafloor. Now, here's a place that had not seen the light of day, literally, for billions of years. And I, and I know we were the first humans to go there. And we saw this trash. And back in the early 90s, marine conservation really hadn't even emerged as a, a field of interest. We, no one had noticed that the oceans were deteriorating, and certainly no one had thought about reversing that, that trend. So... When I saw that, there's a, there's a thing that I like to call the consequence of knowing. You know, in life, once you know something, there's a consequence to it. If you know that uh, people are uh, starving somewhere, yeah. I feel there's a moral consequence to that knowledge, that you need to do something about it if you can. I agree. And uh, so I think my, my, uh, my antenna went up when I saw that. But it, like most things in life, it didn't happen overnight. It was like... And I said, oh, hmm, oceans are in trouble. Hmm, I wonder if we should do something about it. A few years later, a job came up that had to do with marine conservation. And I'm sure that if I hadn't done, been on that dive previous years, and, and then I saw other things since then, I moved over into that field. I mean, I did not want to. In fact, I always like to say that my, my goal in life was to work myself out of a job in terms of uh, my focus on marine conservation. I would love to see the oceans uh, irretrievably on a path of recovery such that I can go back to uh, diving on uh, shipwrecks and diving on uh, for the for pure science, but I, I don't think we can afford to do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, just so I understand correctly, you were exploring a part of the ocean floor uh, people had not been there before. Never. But yeah. there was well, our trash was there. Yeah. So our trash has explored more of the ocean than we have. Oh, this is for sure. It would have been like interesting. I've never not, not thought about it that way. It would have been like Neil Armstrong having to kick a can away mm -hmm. as he stepped on the moon. Uh, yeah. Uh, the the Mars rover gets a, gets a 
Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's unfortunate. That's interesting. Uh, do you remember um, your – this is a question I ask everybody, and I often uh, – sometimes it's not interesting. We don't always include it. Uh, yeah. But do you remember the first time you gave something? Um, lots of folks at the birthday present to their parents or Christmas present or something. But do you remember your, uh, the first time you uh, took it upon yourself to give somebody else a gift? Uh, yeah, yes, in that the, it turned into a family joke. When I was five years, six years old, it was my sister's birthday party, mm-hmm. and my parents took me down to the local toy store and said, okay, it's your sister's birthday party. What do you want to get her? And I bought a truck to give her a truck because that was the best thing I could think of mm-hmm. that, she, that anybody could possibly want was a truck. <laughs> it turned into a family joke. But yeah. uh, in terms of what I think you're going after here, which well, is... Well, it's, it's, uh, it's somewhat interesting. Yeah. Uh, you were, they, they took you to the toy store and they said, pick, pick something for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's not really you. It's not really me, yeah. me doing that. I mean, probably. I mean, that's not you, like, decided and, and, and it can probably, be gift, probably a gift. Probably a girlfriend in high school, you know, mm-hmm. you know trying, sure. to, trying to curry favor with the opposite <laughs> sex. Because <laughs> um, it's a, you know, uh, a turnabout's fair play. Uh, mine was, um, so I saved up uh, my allowance and I bought uh, some dangly uh, sterling silver Pretty sure she's never worn them. Uh, she does not wear anything sort of silver or dangling earrings. So. That's funny. I used to get great <laughs> pleasure in buying my mother stuff when I was traveling because I, when I started my work in marine science, I ended up traveling a lot when I was young. When I, as soon as I going to Antarctica and getting on a research ship here, research ship there, so I'd end up in these remote, out of the way places. And I, I don't think I had a girlfriend at the time, so I used to buy my mother a sweater or a hat or something like that, and it was always like thrill her. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. funny. Uh, yeah, I love, uh, they, uh, uh, at this point, if my mom wanted something, she bought it already. So getting that thing was difficult. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whenever I can find something, I'm like, oh, this is unique. They, they would enjoy this. It's usually like a book I find at a used bookstore. Yeah. Um, they, they will read any book they're given. Um, and uh, whenever I can find one that, they, like, that they're like, yeah, definitely actually interested in. Um, I, I also remember, uh, so my grandfather uh, was a, a very serious man. Not, I don't think really understood gift giving. Uh, we were Jewish, but I grew up in Maine, so we did have Christmas because it would have just been cruel to me otherwise. Right. I would have literally been the only kid in school. Um, all these other kids get Christmas, and then you don't. Right. Right. It would have been child abuse. So. Right. Uh, we didn't like go to church or anything, but we put the, the, the pine trees were quite accessible. Uh, it was fun to go out and we chop them down on our own. It's funny to think like if I were to, uh, in D.C. just go down to Rock Creek Park. I chopped down my Christmas tree. I think I might get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> it's already just when I saw him, to see me walk around yeah, with my axe. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> It's funny how different parts of it. And like now I'm here in Los Angeles, which as far as I can tell is the, the anti-Maine. Literally everything here is different. <laughs> you got pine trees instead of, and you're, like, the ocean looks so different. It was, yeah. And you probably know exactly why. Um, it was clearly formed differently. Uh, like, everything about it looks different from the ocean in Maine, which makes that why. Well, it's... It, one of the things here is you've got a very steep, there's no continental shelf here. In Maine, you've got a continental shelf that extends out to George's Bank. Here, yeah. it drops off precipitously. Interesting. Uh, and also, as I, as I said, that water is warm, right? Relatively, yeah. I grew up thinking that the ocean was always freezing cold. I remember the first time I went to Charleston, Folly Beach, uh, and put my foot in the water, and it was not cold. And I, 
I thought something was wrong. <laughs> Spill or something. <laughs> <laughs> the water is, uh, is, is you can go in it and you're not, you know, freezing. Yeah. You ever do uh, a polar bear run when you were living in Maine? Uh, no. What's that? Oh, right. So the some of the old timers they like to, and you get warned against this. Uh, but in February they go down to um, I used to go to Okunkwood Beach, uh, and basically you all run into the ocean and you see who can stay in there the longest. Oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I love cold water, and I've I've. I, I, one thing I used to do in Maine was we used to carve holes in the ice in a lake, and I'd, we'd jump in and out. And oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I've done that a couple times. And, and, I, and then I ended up Dangerous. doing a lot of winter diving, and, and I've done a lot of diving in Antarctica into oh. icebergs and around icebergs, but, of course, there you've got a suit on. So now I, I like cold water. Uh, yes, um, they it's say it's, uh, this is, it's good for you. There's now these—I um, just heard about this from somebody. I don't know if it's uh, legitimate science or not, but— freezing sessions, cryotherapy sessions. Uh, they put you in a room for two or three minutes, and they bring down a negative 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, they give you gloves and a couple things to, to, to keep you safe, but uh, apparently, but allegedly quite therapeutic, um, which I somewhat believe, because uh, a couple times I was, uh, particularly there, a couple times there, I went on a polar bear run. I was a little bit hungover, like yeah. sore and stiff, and you, 30 seconds in that freezing cold Oh, it takes the hangover right away, doesn't it? Eliminates yeah. it. Yeah. I've never found a better cure for that in my life. Except diving. Uh, yeah, I've never actually. Oh. Uh, I have, um, I grew up on a lake, uh, and I had clippers and a mask, and I used to go down and look at stuff, but I never, uh, I never, never tried to scuba swimming. How come? Uh, honestly, it looked like, uh, yeah, the process of getting certified looked like a lot of rules, and, um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It just seemed like I didn't want to, I didn't want to go through all of it. Yeah. I had a friend who took the class and she yeah. was always studying for it and, and she and she and I remember when she explained to me, I forget what it is, but that if you go up too fast or at the wrong angle or something, you just die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That you gotta be the, very careful, yeah. That was the end of it. All right, all right. Uh, <laughs> there's no chance that I'm gonna not break this rule at some point and just die. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, what is it exactly if you go straight up? Well, there's a couple things. One is if you hold your breath and surface, the because of Boyle's law in physics, the air in your lungs will expand and pop your lungs. So your lungs will just yeah, and then there's another related issue, which is the absorption of nitrogen in your tissue will deabsorb rather quickly, and you get bubbles in your in your uh, tissue and um, can cause like paralysis. Uh, yeah, that's that's rough. Yeah. Uh, the um, I still, I, you know, I did enjoy going down in the lake or whatever. I was able to retrieve a couple fishing poles that I lost uh, on occasion. Um, the re- one of the reasons I do this uh, um, podcast is um, I run a nonprofit I founded uh, a couple years ago called The Unfunded List. Uh, we read unfunded grant proposals from anywhere in the world, any issue in the world. We're trying to raise money to do social good. You got rejected. You probably didn't get any feedback. Um, so you can send me the proposal. I have about 150 experts. Uh, like I said, access to expertise is one of the great privileges in my life. Uh, I also make it very easy for them. We review proposals twice a year. Uh, they get three or four in their area, uh, and I give them six full weeks to read it and send me their thoughts. Uh, and I let them send me their thoughts in whatever format they want. I don't make them log into something. That's good. Uh, and which is really neat because some of them do. Uh, some of them just do audio memos on their iPhone. That's what I do. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I encourage that. The people, the, the folks, love it. Because um, this one dude. Uh, Chris Shembra, who's a Broadway producer, uh, I think he told me he got 11 Tony Awards. I'm really lucky to have him reading 
and stuff. So anytime I get an arts proposal, uh, I send them all to him, uh, and you know he reads them. Uh, he's um, he doesn't like writing, so he told me. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. <laughs> he's like, can I can I do audio memos, right? And so I get so each round I get to send. I mean, this, this guy's an extremely accomplished uh, Broadway producer, and I get I often get like you know people who are trying to raise money to do a play or something, and he gets them direct. It's direct from his direct from his mouth. I don't edit it at all, right? Uh, and uh, Chris gets to do it in a way that, like, you know, uh, he only has to talk to them if he wants to, right? So, uh, obviously, when you're, if you're a Broadway producer, you know, it's kind of tricky, right, giving feedback to people who are up and coming, right? Because they're hustling and they're gonna, they're not gonna <laughs> stop bothering you, uh, right? So, the, the, since everybody gets to give me their feedback, and if they want to talk to them, I encourage you that to facilitate those of you. You know what I've started doing to save time, too, is I just have to check something here. Yeah, we're good. Um, is, you know, how hard it is to, you know, how your brain, your brain can process information like four times as fast as you can read. Mm-hmm. And so what I've started doing is using the, um, the, the wonders of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is, you know, I'll, I'll select a document and I'll put it on like four times the speed of normal reading, and I just let it play in the background. And you can you can understand exactly what's happening without it without Siri going at a normal speed, you know, <laughs> and that way I get a lot more done. I'll just I'll just put a like if I have to read a scientific paper or a, a white paper or something like that. In my world, it's pretty boring to sit there and, and read the thing, so I'll just put it on rapid rapid speech. That's interesting. Yeah. I was reading recently about uh, like, David Boyce, the um, I think I'll show you. Yeah. The trial attorney who is uh, extremely dyslexic, borderline illiterate. Uh, and I was reading about all the ways that he deals with that, obviously being a lawyer is, um, involves a lot of reading, uh, and he's, he's come up with some really interesting, um, unique ways to do it, uh, and uh, probably, you know, if it weren't for that challenge, I never would have become the person he is. Which I like, is. listen to this. This is on fast, but you can you can hear what's going on here. Seascape, ETPS, is world-renowned, this 2 million km2 region, comprising the Pacific waters, coasts and islands of Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia and Ecuador, includes the world's densest... Coast and who the fuck wants to read that? I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like this technical... You know, but, but I have to get the information in my head, right? So, there it is. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, so, anyway, we, um, uh, we've reviewed uh, a little bit over 100 proposals, I think 110. Uh, and some of them have had to do with the oceans. Uh, I don't think any of them have been... Uh, we give them feedback... And well-meaning folks. Uh, nothing uh, on the oceans has, has wowed me, particularly. Uh, one of the first ones we got, and one of the, I think, sillier ones, uh, it's called Art Reef. He was going to fix the coral reef by dropping art on it. So he's going to take boats, get old art, unwanted art, and go out to the reef and just drop it into the ocean and let it sink down there. And he, and he claimed that the, then the reef would grab the art somehow and reform around the art. Sounds like. <laughs> what's this guy? I think you guy needs. To go to, I, I think he needs to go to detox mean? first, <laughs> and then maybe maybe he'll have something. <laughs> well, one of the things that's tough, you know, he came up with this idea, and I think uh, it's possible that in the normal course of events, right, no one wants to tell him your idea is silly, <laughs> right? Who wants to? Someone's trying to raise money for this. They want. He wants to save well, free. That's that. This is worthwhile, uh, and. It, well, well, actually, not, you know, springing off of that, let, let me tell you what I've found, Dave, is is important in 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 how to get how to come up with more effective ways of of, of doing things. Yeah, this is where my questions go. Yeah, one is that <laughs> we're we're in the age of uh, we're not in the age. What we need is more lateral thinking, and by that I mean 
and this, I want to come back to the expertise question earlier because it's that's important. Um, you know, this book, The End of Expertise, is uh, it's an academic guy from Boston, actually, who happened to be the most. He won more Jeopardy uh, shows than anybody. He's one of these guys. Jennings? Maybe he's a Russian expert. He's a he's a professor at University of Massachusetts in Russian studies, and happens to have a bit of an encyclopedic mind. His brother is a bartender in Boston. I mean, he's he's from a working class background, but he happened to have this gift. So he his book is about the fact that uh, he students in his class should worship him. He's kind of he starts it off a bit tongue in cheek. He, he's an old fashioned. He believes they should like come up and put an apple on the desk and and he knows everything there is to know. They shouldn't pretend like they could ever know as much as he does because he spent his whole life studying it, blah, blah, blah. And he says the tendency today, and he uh, actually refers to um, a, a very well-known uh, scientist, and this is not my opinion if this ends up in the broadcast, podcast. This is the, <laughs> the guy that wrote this book, The End of Expertise. He, he refers to Neil deGrasse Tyson. He says there's a tendency nowadays that if you're an expert in a field, you tend to then feel like you can talk about other fields as if you were yeah. an expert, that if you're, and, and I've actually, when I wrote my book, my most recent book, uh, Soul of the Sea in the Age of the Algorithm, I heard this guy's talk in the middle of writing the book, and I said, whoa, I said I was doing the same thing. I, I was beginning to write as if I knew a lot about anthropology and, and all these other areas, so it really helped me dial back what I was saying a little bit. So he, he says that, you know, we really need to respect deep expertise in a field and not think that because you've read a book on a subject, you can then speak authoritatively about, about, about that subject. We are in an age where I call it the ocean renaissance, <clears throat> where, and I can get into a little more detail what that means exactly. It's, it's, I unpack it in the book a bit more. But we need, on the other hand, to be sensitive to a variety of disciplines. In other words, if you go into the ocean and all you study is the ecology of a coral reef and what to do about the ecology of the coral reef, but you don't consider what happens to the people that live along the coastline in the Philippines and depend on the coral reef for their livelihood, nor do you have any sensitivity to the economics, the long-term economic trend of a degraded reef system, the natural capital. Uh, in, in other words, to really be effective today, you've got to have some awareness of economics. You have to have some awareness of anthropology. You have to have some awareness of ecology. You have to have awareness of international affairs. You, you really do need to be a renaissance thinker. I like to say the ocean renaissance is a time when fishermen become scientists, where scientists become policymakers, where policymakers become politicians, where politicians become anthropologists, and you know the, the circle goes, goes around. So that is, is what I see as the big need today, is lateral thinking, but also if you want to pay respect to this other guy that wrote this book, a respect for expertise. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a contradiction there. But it, it, to be effective today, we really need to be Renaissance thinkers. Now, now, the Renaissance in Europe was a time when humanity did several things. We uh, created the first networks. Think about that. We didn't really have networks back then. And today, we think about networks in terms of electronics. Well, back then, it was communication. It was like one smart guy in this city-state would communicate with another smart guy in that city-state who would communicate with another smart and And that network magic began to happen. New, if you will, I don't want to say new consciousness, but new awareness began to emerge because of the circumspect nature that a, that a network gives you. We also consolidated what we knew. 
humanity had just come through the dark ages. People had kind of forgotten what we knew. So we went back and said, hey, how many books do we have left from the Library of Alexandria? And <clears throat> by the way, what, what do all those manuscripts say in the Vatican? And if we pull it all together, what does it mean? And then thirdly, we uh, invented arguably science, which is the, all, science to me is nothing more than a system of rules that keeps us from lying to each other. Uh, at the end of the day, it's quite simple, really. Now, I feel like we're in need of another renaissance now. And obviously we have uh, new networks emerging at a phenomenal rate. We have uh, a consolidation of knowledge happening through the internet. But what's needed today, which didn't happen in the European Renaissance, is a consolidation of indigenous knowledge and indigenous social practices. Because back in the day, they weren't aware of any indigenous systems. And if they were, they didn't really care about them. But uh, I found through my work that uh, there's actually some scalable indigenous systems that we should be looking at as we, as we encounter this rapidly changing world. I'll give you a couple of examples. The uh, Iroquois seven generation rule. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, yes, but I don't quite, I don't remember. But I've definitely heard of that. Well, the Iroquois American Indians uh, had a rule that any decision made <clears throat> by the tribe for the tribe had to be good for seven more generations. Yeah. In other words, cutting down all the trees on the reservation in order to sell them to a, a logging company was not a very good idea, even though they'd make a lot of money in the short term. You know, going to war, whatever, whatever the decision was, it had to be good for. Now, wouldn't it be something if we no, sorry, they talk about it in the we talk about two, we talk about two and four-year election cycles. We talk about quarterly returns on businesses. You know, we have other things that drive our decision making. They're not those kind of. Yeah, uh, and there's a there's the a. Thing about Congress was just I think the quarterly capitalism probably. And those folks aren't thinking. Yeah. Now, I used to think indigenous knowledge and indigenous social practices was important, but quaint. I used to think it like belonged in a museum, in a box. <laughs> you know, you respect it, and it's socially correct to respect it, but I've now come to believe that they're actually products of social evolution. Many thousands, in some cases tens of thousands of years of evolution, where those communities that didn't have these kind of social practices didn't survive. And we could talk more about them if you're interested. I, I give you other examples that I've come across. Some of them are right about in the book, in the, in the values section. Um, so I don't know why I said all that, but that's kind of yeah, it's kind of where you led me. Yeah, one of the more, uh, as you were talking, I think it's interesting. Obviously, thinking about the, the uh, pipeline protests. Yeah. Um, survived, one of the tribes did not, and that's the, and that's the very old tradition that they brought with them that in, in evolutionary theory would uh, uh, have us respect that. That's a, that's a very interesting point. Yes, I think you're probably right about that. 
Yeah, you have to <clears throat> you have to look at the practical implication of what the what the idea is, and then see if it uh, if it would make sense to have it in a UN agreement or in Congress or some other place. Uh, well, the actual um, the actual question uh, was uh, what's the what's like the new so the folks who who send us stuff they tend to have new ideas, right? Our brief for all of the criticism you can give to it. This is right. It's a new outside the box idea, right? And I don't want to. I think we should encourage people to have. Sure. Give them critical feedback they have. Uh, what are the like exciting areas, new and outside the box stuff in the ocean um, that you're aware of? Well, uh, I would say aquaculture writ large is new. Is aquaculture is uh, growing food um, in the ocean. Uh, you could you could say that we are in the ocean where we were on land ten thousand years ago. About now, if you if you go back ten thousand years, we were hunter gatherers, right? So you know, Dave Moss would, you know, get up, you know, from in the cave each morning. You'd put on your your bearskin loincloth and you'd sharpen your spear up while while your woman is like telling you what she wants that day, and you're going, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. I'll see what's out there, honey. And so you go out there, and if it's a deer, you get the deer. If it's a little muskrat, you get that. If it's whatever, you come back and eat it. Wildlife. You were catching wildlife and eating it. That's essentially what we do today in the ocean. We're out there catching wildlife and bringing it back and eating it. Then we figured out that there was a half a dozen animals that were pretty good to eat, pretty easy to keep. So we domesticated them, and we hence the domestication of farm animals. Now we're picking those same species in the ocean. And probably 50 to 100 years from now, there's probably going to be a half a dozen animals, mostly fish, in some cases shellfish, in other cases seaweeds, that we have decided are the ones that we're going to grow. And they're going to be grown in some industrial manner, shape, or form along our coastlines, maybe, in, maybe internally, maybe offshore. We don't know yet. but. Uh, that is probably the big idea that's happening, one of the many big ideas that's happening. The other ones are as we're, uh, you know, as, as, as artificial intelligence and machine learning, all that stuff happens, it's yet to express itself in the ocean space. It's possible that sometime in the near future there'll be robots the size of my phone that with the right battery and propulsion technology you can throw into the ocean that'll swim around all day come back and tell you what it found. I mean, that's certainly within the realm of possibility. And, and, and that's the kind of information <clears throat> that we need. You know, we, it is true that we have better maps of the surface of the moon and the surface of Venus and all the other planets in our solar system than we do of our own seafloor. Uh, there are mountains under the ocean that we only know are there because there's a gravity anomaly when a gravity satellite goes over that part of the ocean. We've actually never been there to, to, to image that part of the seafloor. Um, what prevents us from, how is it possible that we have better maps of Venus than we do of our own ocean floor? Well, because, because we can get uh, maps of uh, Venus from uh, radar, uh, synthetic aperture radar of satellites that, you know, all you need to do is send a satellite up there and have it do enough polar orbits that it covers the whole planet, you've got a great map. 
you can't do that because electromagnetic energy attenuates in the ocean, so you need to use acoustic energy. So that means you've actually got to send a, a, a surface vessel right over every part of the ocean in order to image back the, the map of the seafloor. What would it take to do something like that, to fully map the ocean floor? Oh, what would it take? Depends on what resolution you want. If you want the resolution that we currently have for other planets in our solar system, uh, it would take a few years of surveys, you know, dedicated survey ships going out there and essentially just going right over every square inch of the seafloor. If, it's always fun to look at a, a map, uh, a chart of the ocean, and sometimes you'll see, uh, I mean, we have a general sense of what the seafloor is like. I don't, don't get me wrong. We know that there are these mid-Atlantic ridges, there's spreading centers, there's trenches, but we don't know the... Uh, the structure of every ridge and valley, and we don't know the, the contours of every mountain. Uh, and if you look at a uh, chart, even modern charts, sometimes you'll see, you probably did in Maine, maybe being in Maine, it's kind of a nautical place. If you get a chart, you'll probably find one around here somewhere, you'll often see a series of numbers going across the chart in a straight line. Do you ever remember seeing that on a chart? Well, that is, that's the echo soundings of a ship that happened to traverse across that oh. one place. Some of them are from the 1800s because no one's gone back to do full, uh, it's called a multi-beam sonar when you get a, a whole bunch of high-resolution sonar beams going out to give you the texture, of, for example, picking up on the topography of a table this height at uh, maybe 10,000 feet. Uh, you'd need a lot, of, a lot of information. So it's just, it's just time and effort and we haven't put into the oceans yet. I mean, what, I mean, certainly there are, I mean, we have, the U.S. Navy has basically total dominance of the seas. We've got several carrier groups. There's merchant trade ships going all over the place all the time. Uh, why aren't... Um, and in 19... <laughs> and, in, and, in, and in 2000, like and I think it was 2003, the USS San Francisco, a nuclear-powered submarine, slammed into the side of a seamount killed one sailor and injured a whole bunch more. Google it later, it's quite a dramatic picture. A submarine crashed into a mountain? An underwater mountain. It's the USS right. San Francisco. It's, a, it's a quite an incredible photograph yeah, of it because they didn't know it was there. They were going about 40 knots and bam, <laughs> right into the side. Well, I mean, yes, I mean certainly the, uh, the Navy would have the budget and the ships acquired to carry this out. Yeah, but uh, they haven't. They, they don't see the advantage in this. They have not seen the advantage for those high-resolution maps yet. No. Um, another way to think about it is the, uh, you know, the Lewis and Clark expedition. Remember that? It was the. My father taught that in school. It was the largest geographic expansion of the United States. You know, Thomas Jefferson bought this area. It was double the size of the country. And what's the first thing he did? He sent these two guys out to survey it, and they, they walked from right across it. And do you realize the maps and the information they collected basically were the basis of the next 100 years of an American expansion out into the West? Uh, and we've yet to do that in the ocean. We've yet to have the Lewis and Clark expedition of the ocean to go down and have a look at where are the rich, I mean, we, we, we kind of know where the rich mineral deposits are, but we don't know in fine resolution where they are. We certainly don't know what the species are down there. And there's a lot of uh, probably, uh, there's a lot of, uh, they're called thermophilic 
bacteria, you know, bacteria that can exist in high temperature. There are bacteria that can exist in high pressure. And these have, a, these, these have potential for industrial applications. Um, there's just a lot. That, I recall there's, a, there's a, uh, perhaps a worm or whatever that's having a carbon-based life form. Well, <clears throat> there's yeah. There's um, what happened is in 1977, uh, an expedition with the research uh, submersible Alvin uh, went looking for uh, hydrothermal vents. Now the geologists had predicted these vents, which is, you know, the mantle is uh, the the Earth's mantle is very near the bottom of the seafloor, right? Because the way geology is, you've got the continents which are these continental big, thick things. And then you've got the seafloor. Now, the seafloor doesn't have a continent, so you can erase the continent, and now you're very close to the mantle, and the mantle's hot. So the geologists had figured out that down at the bottom of the seafloor, there's probably places where water was being heated and recirculated and brought back up through the seafloor. And in fact, there were, and they found them finally in 1977. They predicted them off the it's called a location called Nine Degrees North, about 500 miles off the coast of Costa Rica. But what nobody had any had dreamed of was that there would be life associated with these hot vents, life that was, in fact, dependent on uh, metabolizing uh, 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 sulfur. And the word chemosynthetic life entered the scientific lexicon. Uh, prior to that, we thought all forms of life had to be derived from the sun. Now we found life that was not derived from the sun. It was derived from a chemical. And that, in turn, gave us hope for, uh, gave us a whole new realm of hope for finding life in outer space. Because now you could go underneath the ice of Europa, through the European Sea, down to the seafloor of Europa, where you know there's no sunlight, but you do know there's probably hydrothermal vents. Oh. And, and so it opened up a whole new world. I always like to say that it'll take an oceanographer to find life in space. <laughs> um, man, that's fascinating. Uh, thank you for uh, you know, for humoring me there. I was vaguely aware that there were some strange worms, and you knew all about them. So thanks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The benefits of having an expert on because I often they're called vestiminiferin worms, I'm an and the worms <laughs> and the worms they they can metabolize the sulfur. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. One of the challenges for me uh, as a philanthropist and also you know running my organization is right, I'm. I'm constantly dealing with problems, right? Uh, all these people are trying to solve a problem, and I spend time trying to think of like, what are the, you know, what are the problems most worthy of, um, right, our time and attention? Uh, I don't think funding is going to all of the right places, uh, and um, you know, the, one of the things I've learned, uh, you know, through these interviews and stuff is that um, true generosity in philanthropy is extremely rare, uh, almost uh, particularly high net worth. Almost all these folks give uh, for a personal reason, right? Um, the, and you know, you yourself, you got into the oceans for it because it, yeah. was, it was satisfying to you personally, right? Not because, not originally because you set out to save the oceans for everybody else. And I don't think humans, it's not in our nature, it's not how we, if we were that gregarious, we probably would not have evolved uh, to the point we're at, right? But, um, so the result is, is that uh, like, uh, so diseases uh, get uh, a tremendous amount of funding because uh, even the, the wealthy are, are not immune to them. Mm -hmm. right? So Alzheimer's, uh, but even within disease, right, the, the diseases that are killing the most people are not the ones getting the most funding. Uh, and um, I would love my... 
that's a good point. My yeah. lifelong goal uh, is to make it so that the funding goes to the starts to go to the areas of the most need, right? Because if I think we start solving just we, we're solving problems left and right if we like with just better allocation of resources. My biggest pet peeve of the entire social impact sector. Every time I hear a fundraiser come out and give a talk, right, he has to point out that we need that the only solution is that we need to raise more money. Particularly, everybody at the UN believes all of the problems are solvable with just a little bit more budget for the UN. Right, their five trillion dollar budget not enough for them. Um, they need we need to raise more money. Is that what the budget is for the UN? Five trillion. You have to count. Yeah. They would no one at the UN's ever going to admit it because there's just so many different right things that's not part of it. Right. Dave was just emailing the president <laughs> of the UN today. Good <laughs> I mean, uh, work happens yeah. uh, at the UN. I certainly think it's really, really useful to have them. Uh, I think they should stop congratulating themselves for coming up with a to-do list. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, but it is an accomplishment. We didn't have a we didn't have a global to-do list before this. Right. Uh, and that's a good step. It's wildly unrealistic, but <laughs> it's a good step. Uh, speaking of which, what do you think of? I forget which goal it is, but there is an ocean goal. Fourteen. Did you, I assume you probably worked on it? Yep. Uh, consulted with them on. Uh, what is what is the specific goal on the ocean? Well, it's a number of dimensions. It just has to, it has to do with uh, food security. You know, getting food out of the ocean because um, the it's pretty widely real. You know, today one in four people get their protein out of the ocean every day, and most of those people are poor. And as we go into the future, uh, it's the strategy of the World Bank and the UN that the burgeoning populations of coastal poor people will need to have seafood because it's such a great brain food for kids. The icon for that goal is a, is a fish, right? Yeah. Um, what's the sort of person who gives to the ocean? Is it, the, is it all divers, the people who uh, grew up on the ocean? Or what, what's the personal connection that causes that? You mean in terms of uh, foundation and personal giving? Yeah. yeah. When, when well, I found, I found that uh, there's three things that an individual, and I call them, I'm, I'm, ta I'm referring now to high net worth individuals, sure. not people that write a check for $10 at the end of the year for the local thing. They need to have three, three things. One is um, capacity, obviously. Uh, one, the other one is uh, a passion. And the ocean is a thing that generates passion people so it's not always about diving it's not always about living by the coast it's just people get people have a thing about the ocean sure and, it's, and it's a passion <clears throat> and the third thing the person has to have is generosity and and I've in my experience raising money for the oceans you'll often find uh, <laughs> one or two but it doesn't work unless you have all three uh, you, you really do have to have all three because someone can have a lot of capacity and tremendous passion, but if they don't have the generosity gene, it doesn't work. They've, they've got to have that innate ability to pull out and write a big check. Uh, and this is how, as a fundraiser, how, this is exactly how I score uh, donor prospects. I do a one to three scale uh, for uh, like the capacity, uh, interest, I say interest instead of passion, uh, and, then, uh, and then generosity. And if you get, if you find, if you find somebody who's got three for three, um, that's, that's, a, that's your, you just spend, you should be trying to spend all of your yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, my, my question is mostly about the generosity um, factor, right? Because, I, like I said, I don't, I, I think pure generosity exists, right? But that it's almost always that they at least believe that they're getting something out of it. Uh, I mean, they want it to be there. They know that they need it to live, right? Um, 
so that you, you mentioned um, briefly that the, um, the, the these are the high net worth folks, uh, and then but there are I think a lot of uh, regular individuals, uh, uh, particularly in this country, almost everybody makes donations. Um, friends of mine used to work at Ocean Conservancy, uh, and I happen to know that uh, they had uh, they they were. Who was that? Uh, oh, so th this was this would have been a long time ago, but um, uh, I knew like most of the young folks that worked there. Uh, I used to hang out with them. I worked at a nonprofit that was across DuPont Circle from them. This is back when, uh, so Vicki Spreel uh, ran it. She now runs the Council on Foundations, which is a very big deal. Uh, but I used to go to happy hours with her and the rest of the Ocean Conservancy folks. So I know, and in fact, the only donation I ever made to the Ocean uh, was because I wanted the little stuffed turtles that they gave as a gift. I saw one <laughs> at uh, Kate Sherman's house, and I was like, I want that stuffed turtle. How do I get it? And you had to make a few dollar donation. Yeah. So I made it. Uh, and I feel like there probably are people. And they're giving those turtles for a reason. Uh, but what causes people to write a ten dollar check to, to something like Ocean Conservancy? Most people write those kind of checks for uh, I, I would call it uh, animal rights issues. Mm. It's like they look at a seal with a big big up those big watery eyes. Mm -hmm. I've and, seen some. and that generally generates those kind of checks, I think. Or or a whale or a dolphin or something like that. The <clears throat> the esoteric people love dolphins. People love dolphins, and they can relate to them. And that's what generally drives that kind of fundraising, in my experience, hmm. is animal stuff. Uh, so not, not like we need to return a fishery to MSY within 10 years, plus or minus two years. Otherwise, the spawning stock of the fecund right. females will fall below the critical level required to maintain the stock in perpetuity. For, you know what I mean? The real stuff. They use fecund for, I only heard that for fruit. Oh, let's use it for, so use it for fish absolutely. Yeah. Female that can be impregnated. Uh, fecundity. 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 <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it, it just means like uh, reproductive uh, viability. Uh, yeah, they, they, uh, in uh, apple orchards, they will refer to the, the, the fecundity. More what? Fecund is what I oh, how they pronounce it back in Maine. I assume is the wrong. I've always assumed that however they pronounce it in Maine is the wrong. It's safe right, to assume right. that is not how you pronounce that word. <laughs> right. Um, no, fecund is a is a it's a biological term for anything. So uh, yeah. Um, so, but uh, you raise a really interesting point. This is something that happens. So, with a lot of proposals I read that are from what I call the Maven set uh, are like what you were just saying, right? Here's the like scientific results we're going to get on this, right? And to them, uh, it just makes perfect sense, right? They are very much inside the box of what they're doing. They know that if they get funding, that they will achieve this outcome, and they and they uh, and they know that they need that money. Yeah. And they know that there's this pile of money here, so they apply and they send their right yeah. there, uh, and uh, all of that stuff. Um, you probably had to fundraise to do your research and stuff, which often like so. How do you? Uh, you need to tell them some of the science, right? But also in a way that makes it interesting. What's the? Um, what's your What's your angle when you fundraise for your research? You, uh, what's my angle? Uh, it's usually a, a case statement, you know, the why, you know, the why does it matter? Mm -hmm. And and if it's if it's science, that's another whole kind of a proposal, you know, which is based on the, you know, referring to literature and what's known, what's not known. But I don't do much of that kind of fundraising anymore. That was earlier in my career. Now it's more, now it's more like uh, we will we will change this policy decision by. Uh, providing this information to that person by mm. launching this website by you know sort of making those kind of arguments. 
So the donors you're looking for now are ones that want specific policy well, changes. Let me give you a, I'll give you an example. Uh, Please. And I, and I, and I don't even mind, um, well, let me leave the name out for the time being. I, I, it's probably okay to put the name in there. I met a high net worth individual about 10 years ago. And uh, he said to me, he said, uh, Greg, I like the ocean. I have a passion for the ocean. Uh, I have resources and I would like to do something. But he said, I get asked by all these different people for different things. I don't know where to put my money. He said, and I'm a businessman and I would like to make a business decision. So together, he and I uh, came up with something called the Ocean Health Index. Have you ever heard of that? Okay. I can make a guess as to what it is. Yeah, it's a metric for uh, the health of the ocean. Uh, and it's, a, it's like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, if you will, of the ocean. I'm going to give you something. Uh, and this, You'll need to this guy is named Bill Wrigley. And uh, we essentially came up with the world's first scientifically uh, transparent global measure of ocean health that by country, each country gets its own yeah. index. And it, because it's a scientific metric, you can actually go in and see how it's constructed. Uh, so the folks listening can go to oceanhealthindex.org. .org. And the, the purpose of this tool was to uh, create a metric where uh, uh, a philanthropist could go into it and say, Oh, I, I want to invest. I want to. There's no way we're recording this. Yeah. I want to. What's that? Oh, I'm just sorry. No way we're picking this up. Okay, I'll come back. The, uh, <laughs> the the purpose of this was to. Uh, well, I would like the listeners to hear this. To teach. Yeah, the purpose of this metric was to enable uh, a donor to invest very strategically to move the metric, right? Because if you understand how the metric is comprised, you can then go in and move it, and also for policymakers to. Uh, change the, the, the index of their country if it's a, if it's a nation or their backyard if it's a, uh, at a smaller scale. So it's really uh, uh, meant to be a tool of change. Interesting. Do you call this gamification? Oh, a little bit. Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of that there. There's a little bit of that there, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah countries love that. They love in, in indexes. You know, yes. politicians love it. You know, are we, we're going to raise our poverty and we're going to lower our poverty index. We're going to raise our our education index, we're going to do this. I've had some uh, politicians have actually run on this as a plank in their in their campaign. I will raise the ocean health index of the country by five points if you elect me, that sort of thing. That sounds good. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. I see one of the <coughs> countries on here um, <coughs> is the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, which uh, just confused me. Am I misremembering my geography? No, well, it's a low country, low score, right? Yeah, but yeah. they're not on the ocean, are they? Uh, the Congo. Uh, it is. That's possible. I just don't have this map of Africa accurate in my head. But uh, I always thought that was the central. I'm not sure. We have to pull out a map and look. Uh, well, but this, uh, if they have large lakes or other water or other waterways, does that? Get no, they have to have an, they have to have an ocean to be oh. on that list. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it must be. I think they have a port. I think the Congo has a has a, has a mm -hmm. one of those countries that like maintain a sliver out there to the yeah, ocean. I mean, they're third from last. Yeah. Most of the West African countries are at the bottom of that list. Yeah, I see them And that's there. because so the Ocean Health Index is highly correlated with the development index. And that's because without a high state of development, you don't have the ability to enforce your EEZ, you know, illegal fishing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, uh, many of these countries will not be, are not capable of yeah. working on this issue. 
Right, right. Unfortunately, for the, right. Uh, for the time being, which is. Um, but, but that illustrates a couple points. That illustrates lateral thinking. So that was, a co that was a collaboration between a business leader and myself, right? So it was a scientist <coughs> and a business leader, and, and the business leader challenged me. He said, I want to invest. I'm a businessman. I want to invest. I want to save the ocean, but I'm, I'm not going to do it unless I can measure it. And, <coughs> and that challenged me to, and others, a whole bunch of people involved in this, but to come up with this uh, essentially like the Dow Jones Industrial Average for the ocean. Uh, yes, funders do like metrics. This is true what? for not just the ocean, Sure. And, and understand myself, they want to know that they, uh, one of the frustrating things for me as a scientist is you don't, you do not always know. Uh, and I am, I think a lot of folks out there convinced that we can, like we can exercise everything. Yeah. Uh, I know that there are, th I know that that's not true. Uh, my big example would be uh, uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, explain to me the impact of that. And then tell that kid that you're going to take their money away and then you're not going to give them this wish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Those bat kids that they did in San Francisco, that was over a million dollars What, what, they made him Batman for a day? How yeah, his that wish work? was that he wanted to be Batman. Right, but how did they make him Batman for a day? They, they spent a lot of money. <coughs> him, uh, uh, so one, he got to meet, uh, he met Christian Bale and everything. Uh, he got, uh, they made him a little custom bat suit. Uh, and they actually- And a bat car and all that? Uh, I think it was a car. I think he got to ride in the car, yeah. Um, but the, 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 the neat thing, I, you can see the video of this. Uh, they staged this whole thing. Uh, some, uh, like a woman was being robbed or something and he, the kid actually gets to come in and like, Fend off the robber, like actually say it. They hired actors to do it. And there's a huge crowd of people watching it. They blocked off the street. Uh, it was an enormous thing. Uh, video went viral and all that. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, in some network of philanthropists, uh, including one that has a pretty active Facebook page where we argue a lot about, about things. Uh, and uh, a lot of folks were really upset to find out that a million dollars had gone to this, to this situation. And they were making points about like how many lives we could have saved. It's like the whale up in the ice. Remember that years ago? Mm -hmm. <coughs> it was a gray whale stuck on the Arctic ice. Mm -hmm. They spent $10 million to bring an icebreaker in to get it out. Mm -hmm. I found that to be disturbing, <laughs> disturbing to me because $10 million could have saved 100 whales in another situation. But anyway. Certainly. And I think it is worth to think about right, how many lives you can save and try to make the, the difference. But there's something about it still. That well, I, I also know that there was, it was just, so I, I was at work that day and I saw the video of that kid. And I was inspired. Exactly. No There's can, something else about it. No one can measure how much harder I worked as a result of watching that. Right. And I still think about it. It's still something that, that drives me. Uh, and, you know, that kid didn't have a very long life, but he got to be Batman. <laughs> you know, Dave, you know, one of the things that I think about, I think about this, it gets back to what I talked about earlier about the consequence of knowing. Hmm. And part of me, like, when I wake up in the morning and I, and I think about everything that's going on in the world, and if there is one person that is hungry, or if there's one animal that is being tortured, and, and I have money in my savings account that could alleviate either one of those two things, why don't I spend it on that? Mm -hmm. It feels like I should. <laughs> and how do you, what are the limits to that? And I, and I know that, that that gets amplified a lot more for people that have a lot of wealth is how do they justify not spending it all on, you know, alleviating child cancer or hunger or, mm -hmm. or a poor dog that's being, having his, his skin pulled out. You know, any number of atrocities around the world that you can actually have an impact on should you choose to spend your money that way. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I wonder, that's like a, to me, that's like a dilemma that any morally centered person would have on a daily has basis. Any, has any morally centered person justify having two working ones? Exactly. You could take it, you <laughs> could, yeah, you could take it to the kidneys and all that, yeah. So uh, uh, to keep on this, the relationship uh, between scientists and plants is very interesting to me. Uh, if a scientist does bad research, uh, or um, right, either from sloppiness or take like a big risk and end up being wrong. Uh, that, uh, they are often held accountable for that. It's going to fall in the morale. Um, whereas if a philanthropist makes a, a troubled gift, uh, which, which happens, uh, I've done it myself, I made a gift that had the opposite effect of, of what I wanted. And there is no accountability on me for that. And in fact, when I talk about it to other, to other folks, they, they often, I, I, I face confusion. Why would you admit like, or, or, they, or they tell me like, no, you should have, don't feel bad, you were being gentle. Like, what you did was great. I'm like, no, I should have, I didn't, I didn't look into this well enough, and I ended up making a mistake. And I, you know, every, but everybody makes mistakes. Scientists are gonna make mistakes, every single person, we should be allowed to, uh, to make that mistake. One of the things that's interesting, it's, a, it's well, first of all, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't think scientists are discouraged from failing. I think that it's part of the scientific culture to try, you know, Try again, try again, as long as it's not incompetence. Mm -hmm. As long as it's not something like, you know, misspending of money or, or a flawed design or something. Uh, but in terms of uh, one of the things that's, that I found interesting about the philanthropic world, and they're getting better, is a common theme that from donors is we want you, all you scientists, all you marine conservationists, all you whatever it is, to work more closer together. You guys are all doing different things, and you know, we just get your act together. And I've challenged back, and I said, well, if you donors could get together, it would make things a lot easier, too, because every donor tends to have their own. And I've, and I've oh, sort of yeah. had a touche you know, back from, from some donors who, who have said, you're right. You know, oh. is, it, is it fair of us to demand that of you when, we, when, we don't, you know, when the donor community doesn't do it? Also, who's in the best position to help the scientific community communicate with Funding. Yeah. If your donor says, "Hey, I want you to talk to this team," you're going to do it, right? Yeah. Well, things have <laughs> things have gotten better better on that front. For I think sure. it's, a, it's a trend in philanthropy that I've noticed. It's one, one of the more encouraging ones. And I would argue that philanthropy, minus churches, are stopgap measures to change the world. And the the end game should be that the desired activity. This is, I, I guess, apart from arts. Arts, that's a little bit different, but I'm thinking of my my line of work, which is sustainability. It's it's by the way, sustainability is like an old word. Now it's regenerative. Everything we do, I've been hearing that everything we do should be regenerative, not just sustainable. Someone talked to me recently. Are you interested in regenerative capitalism? I didn't have a whole lot of time. Yeah. That's like, uh, yes, I, yeah. But I can't talk about it. So it just seems like the, the end game should be to get the proper behavior, the proper practices woven into everyday life, right? That's really what we're after. And that would, in my world, eliminate the need for philanthropy. Just a comment. Indeed, yes. Um, those, uh, so on those uh, figures in terms of uh, you know, all, the, all that gets spent, you know, I, this, I spent a lot of time talking to the, the folks who are, who are trying to fundraise uh, and just giving them basic figures about what the field is like. Uh, so uh, if you were to follow the advice, follow the money, right? One might assume that the corporations are a good source to raise money from. 
Uh, and in fact, uh, I, so I worked at Conservation International for two months. Uh, I worked for, uh, her name was Tracy Lamandu. Oh, I knew Tracy, yeah. She might, no, she moved on to something else. Smithsonian. Yeah, yeah so I knew it was some of the sort of big name yeah. thing. Uh, she was lovely, I really liked uh, working for her, but uh, for various reasons, CI was not the right uh, fit for me. I think I, I like being smaller uh, operations. Uh, but it was me, and one of the focuses what year were you? What year were you there? Eight years? 2008? Yeah, I think you and I might have overlapped. Yeah, probably. I, I had just, if, if at all, it would have been right at my beginning and you're right at the end. Yeah. I just found that while I was there, we had, uh, so um, I forget, Fabian Custo. Uh, you mentioned his, I think his grandfather yeah. earlier. Uh, I know, came I in know there, Fabian, yeah. yeah. I mean, he came in with a bunch of animals. I, met a, I hugged a penguin. Uh, and, um, I just saw his cousin yesterday, Philippe. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I know Philippe's. I didn't know he had an ex-wife. This has been hiding her. I can't keep her. Is she in Thailand somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> I know she's um, uh, in New York. Uh, she is at CSR on Twitter. So she um, tweets that she's like totally into the corporate sustainability stuff, which is what we were, uh, the like strategic focus at CI had shifted recently while I was there. And, that's why I, and I remember Tracy in particular while I was there working on a partnership with Harris, the big casino. Uh, but that's, she had in her portfolio lots of those uh, corporate stuff, and we were making the, the business case for, uh, for conservation. So right, right. Okay. That was the big trend and strategy of the major gifts department, yeah. that, which, which is where I was. Uh, it was a really neat experience to be there. I got to see how like, a big, well-functioning development office works. Right. And realize that I don't want to work in a well-functioning <laughs> development office. But it was a, a finally a tool machine. I remember you. Yeah, you, know, you were the one hanging out in the coffee area trying to pick up all the girls all the time. There were a lot of young ladies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was uh, honestly my entire career in philanthropy. Just picking been, up young ladies? That has been one of the better benefits. I'll <laughs> uh, just say for other young men out there that are considering a career. You know, it is like 75% women work in the social justice. Um, and uh, these are lovely, they're lovely ladies. They are. They are. They are all no, lovely ladies. Not all. <laughs> <laughs> the majority, but there are exceptions to everything. One of the cool, the cool uh, at, at Conservation International. Uh, one of the coolest things. My favorite organization. Yes. Uh, no, I'd love to hear you about your role there. I'll just tell one more story about my time there. Uh, oh, maybe I'll tell two. Um, uh, so one, uh, the, the the thing that finally brought for me, and why I realized I didn't want to go there. Uh, is the other major gifts assistant who did donor research. Uh, she was reporting at our weekly meeting, and she was listing off the donors she was researching that week. And one of them I knew well. Uh, I had raised money from him at a, at a previous, not me personally, but a, he was a big donor to the organization I had been at immediately prior, and I had met him several times. I'm going to maintain the donor file on him for my last organization. I knew a lot of information about him. I also had his like contact information. Yeah. Uh, and so I, after the meeting, I went up to her and I, and I told her all this, and she and she was not happy to hear that I wanted to help her. That uh, you wanted to help her? Yeah. Why? Well, I was told, right? Uh, basically, you don't, Dave, you don't have enough work to do. So I was new with the organization, right? And my job was not donor research. That was her job. Huh. And basically, I was told to, to stay in my section of the store. That's weird. Uh, I don't know if it was, that was an isolated incident or if that's, if that's actually. I think it was an isolated incident. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. It seems super strange to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have. You know, she was trying to protect her job, right? Maybe she thought I was trying to. That I was going after her job or something. Um, uh, but uh, it was a, a very weird and awkward. And I had, a, you know, a couple other awkward things about that. And 
I really want, I needed to be in a place where, right, if I knew, if I could help, that I was allowed to help. Right. Um, the, um, the neatest thing that happened there is we, uh, and I was working a little bit on this, just maintaining the list of people who were our team to it, but uh, Harrison Ford was going on a safari and they were selling tickets to go with him on safari. Yeah. Forget the price, but, but uh, quite a bit. Uh, and we were doing a great job selling these tickets. Yeah. Um, that was amazing to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why was and, that? Oh, the, the, well, just, I just yeah, as an idea, yeah. Was, and, I, and like, you know, Harrison Ford had, he could just write a check or he could go speak at events and stuff, but he, this is, this is seriously rolling up your sleeves uh, type things. But I also think about, right, like all the organizations that can't, that can't raise money that way, right? Like, um, and uh, uh, might in fact be doing interesting, uh, uh, good work that deserves to be funded. They're never going to meet Harrison Ford. They're never going to meet any of the people that, that buy a ticket to go on safari with uh, with Harrison Ford. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and uh, while I like that, I like Conservation International. I think they do good work. Uh, I, I I was just uh, I want I, I wanted to help. Um, I want to be the one that like first gets Harrison Ford excited in the organization, not just go work in an organization where he's where they've already got all this stuff set up. Right. Right. Um, how long have you been? I have been working there for eight years, uh, and I am the chief scientist for oceans. And uh, uh, I'm in basically uh, the lead, you know, ocean person, uh, along with a lot of really great uh, people. We have people all over the world, and uh, fantastic team. Uh, so that's what I do, mm-hmm. uh, I, and I'm involved in fundraising, I'm involved in strategy development, I'm involved in execution, uh, all that, all of the above. I'm a tradition, you know, I'm an oceanographer, that's my background. I don't have a background in uh, philanthropy except in the, you know, the hard knocks, you know, sort of the, the, the shoe leather, let's call it the shoe leather, uh, the, school of, the shoe leather school of philanthropy. And spent a lot of time in the high net worth individual place space. It's kind of where I've ended up uh, talking to people, and uh, you know, and I and I also, I also it's, it's also important to remember that, and I, as I mentor and talk to my staff about this, you have to remember that philanthropists need projects as much as the projects need the philanthropists, and you people, scientists or conservationists or artists, whatever they are. They're not begging for money, and that's that's the error that a lot of young people think they're doing. They're actually presenting opportunity. They're presenting, I think, very high quality opportunity they to the well. to the philanthropist. Yeah, and if it doesn't happen to be a match, it does. It's no it's no referendum on the work. It's just a referendum on uh, making everybody kind of happy in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the um, things often. Starts doing that instead, 
right? That's just not, if the, if the donor knew the right approach in the first place, they'd be right, we wouldn't need grantees. Um, but they do. And when I ask funders about their pain points, uh, I, it's hard to find new projects to fund. It's something that comes up a lot. Uh, so they are, you know, they do want to do it. Uh, and they're, not, they're just not that good at it. Uh, the vast majority of funding goes to places like Seattle. You know, it, interesting donor I had uh, once, uh, and their approach to it, and I couldn't figure out what their approach was. They were funding basically everything that I put before them at a high level. And then finally I asked them, I said, so what is your strategy? Uh, and they said, oh, that's easy. He said, we, we invest in people. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, if we find someone that we know can deliver, and they've got good ideas, we'll invest in their ideas. And we're not so constrained about the subject area. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard some, uh, I've heard some donors say that. Uh, and I, I think, yeah, I, I think that's good. Uh, I mean, there was some broad directionality to what they were interested in. It wasn't like. Yeah, well, I kind of sympathize with that. I, I think I feel like there's no shortage of problems. I never had, like, one problem that I focus on, um, you know, uh, particularly. I, I guess the problem I focus on is that the philanthropy is inefficient. Um, so uh, I have, um, uh, yeah, I was reading about you a little bit, I wrote down a list here of organizations, well-known organizations you've worked with, uh, and uh, a lot of these are, uh, that I, uh, a few of these I've never I've heard of, and I read their stuff, uh, but I, um, I have not been involved with as well. I think the listeners might be interested in hearing your experience with them. Uh, one was Conservation International, which we've uh, just talked about. Number two, one of my favorite places to go as a child, uh, the New England Aquarium, I really like the penguins. Uh, can you tell me about, uh, are you still involved? In, this is in your hometown of Boston, we assume, and you mentioned earlier, um, I think you talked, I think you mentioned the aquarium. Uh, yeah. How did you get involved and what did you do with them? Well, I was, uh, I used to run their uh, conservation programs, and it was, uh, you know, aquarium is, it's interesting. Aquariums, the, first of all, that was the first modern aquarium in the world. And by that I mean, it was the first time somebody made a big building, devoted it to animals and, importantly, their ecosystems, and uh, people came. And it was very much a question of if they build it, will they come? And they did come. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the, it's awesome. That, well, that was the rundown section of town. And that, that aquarium became the model for urban uh, waterfront redevelopment. And mm -hmm. the Baltimore Aquarium followed shortly thereafter. The Monterey Bay Aquarium followed shortly thereafter. These aquariums noticed that if you put an aquarium it became the anchor development piece in the waterfront area. And waterfront areas used to not be the most desirable part of cities. If you yeah, may, if you were, if you Baltimore is quite nice now. Now it is. If yeah. you waterfront areas used to be the place where all of the ships came in and unloaded cargo is often the place where the immigrants first landed and that would be kind of the lower end parts of the uh, the, mm -hmm. the economy. Well, the New England Aquarium reinvented all that and started around. So I thought that was pretty cool. The other, thing that, the other thing that it reinvented was the purpose of an aquarium. Aquariums had an opportunity to either go in the direction of um, a place that sold hot dogs and tickets and fed the fish and made money. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the, as a matter of fact, the Sydney Aquarium is a public, publicly traded company. And if you go there, it's clear that they are in the business of making money. They don't, there's no frills. You go behind the scenes and the conference room have folding chairs in them. I mean, they are really a business. Yeah. <laughs> but the New England Aquarium went in the direction of a mission-oriented institution. They went in the direction of, we are gonna educate people about the world of water, 
we are going to conserve the world of water, and we're going to learn about the world of water. So they became a force in society for good, for the mission. Originally, their, the, the original mission was to make known the world of water. That was their first mission. <clears throat> they revised the mission. To make known the world of water. That was the 1967 mission. Very nice, very poetic. Very Jacques Cousteau-esque. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, he was a founding trustee of the New England Aquarium, oh, Jacques okay. Cousteau. They revised the mission when I was there to became known, became to protect, promote, and present the world of water. Less poetic. Less poetic. <laughs> more, more of a shotgun approach. <laughs> uh, and it speaks to the definition of knowing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Open Door Philanthropy, featuring Dr. Greg Stone. Dr. Stone's book, Soul of the Sea in the Age of the Algorithm, is available on Amazon. And as always, if you're looking for or willing to provide helpful and candid feedback on unfunded grant proposals, please sign up at unfundedlist.com. <laughs>